The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And welcome to our service of Brian Baptist Church. Let's open our Bibles once again to John chapter 4. We finally have opportunity to return to our study of the church. And this is the 13th message in that study. And I'm very much pleased that we come to the topic for this message. I, I love the doctrine of the church. I think you know that. And among the many facets of the church, this is. Worship is one of my favorite topics. It's a Sunday morning and there are many places that you could be. But you have chosen to be here, so I can only assume that worship is something that you want to do. That worship is also uh, a favorite topic of yours. And I think that's, I know it's because worship is in the central nervous system of Christians. Our relationship with God is centered in how we know God, how we respond to Him, how we responsibly reverence His name, and how we respect the place that he has in our life. When God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, he self-identified as the, as the God who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He did that with ten plagues that showed his power over all the imaginary gods of the Egyptians and over Pharaoh, who is the king of the mightiest nation on earth. God's undisputed authority was demonstrated In such a powerful way that there was no one that could argue with those commandments that God gave on the mountain. None of the commandments that had to do with him or any that had to do with anything that God says. You can't argue with him. He began his list. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. God told Israel, because of this indisputable display of power, that they must exclude every living thing as an idol. They must exclude everything in their imagination, and they were not to worship anything but Him. Thou shalt not bow down to them, nor serve them. That's the exclusion of, of anyone but Jehovah God. And the implication in this is that God should be and God deserves to be worshipped as the only true living God, the supreme ruler of all life. I am the Lord thy God. From Mount Sinai, God gave laws that governed the nation of Israel. And though they were the first to receive the, the law in a written form, this was the codification of the law that was already written on the human heart. Already there from the creation of the world. And these commandments that God gave are non-negotiable. They are non-expiring laws. These are laws that rule us for all time. The Ten Commandments are an expression of the righteousness of God, the perfect holiness of God. That expresses the character that God demands The Ten Commandments show us how we are to live. And to obey those commandments is to recognize God. To recognize that he has this authority, that when he demands us to obey him, that we will do it because I am the Lord thy God. Now when we studied 
part three of our series of the church. Our subject was the ministry of the church. And I'm not sure if you remember this. I hope that you do. We said that the most vital part that rules all of our discussion, that rules all the sub-points of what we will discuss about ministry, first on the list of ministry is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It is to lift up Jesus Christ, to proclaim his preeminence as the one to whom all honor, devotion, and worship is due. So it is Christ who says, I am the Lord thy God, and you are to have no other gods before me. So make sure that we understand this, that the God who spoke on Mount Sinai was Jesus Christ. He is the living God. We worship the same living God that appeared to Moses on that mountain that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, it is the same God. And the way that we focus this ministry of exaltation is through worship. It's our adoration of Jesus Christ. It is our recognition of his right to rule our lives and not only the right to rule it, but the complete willingness to recognize that he should have the right. We don't dispute his demand to worship him. We're happy We're most blessed to worship him as slaves of Jesus. And so we stand at the foot of the cross as Israel did at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we see lightning. We see smoke. We see the Son of God lifted up. And we see him saving his people just as he did in the Old Testament. He is the God who is to be worshipped. Well, I want you to keep this in mind as we discuss this topic over the next few weeks. We'll talk about it next week and then we're going to take a break for the Christmas season. I have another series of messages to give you during that time. And so we'll take a break from from this, but there will be more messages on worship. But as we think about this, we, we too easily come into the church without humility, without shame for our sins, We come into the presence of the God who is to be worshipped and often we come with far less reverence than he deserves and, and certainly less than he demands. And so I want you to know this first, that God rules. To worship him is the recognition that we must obey. Worship is accepted only if it is accompanied by obedience. Our chief priority then is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And the question is, how do we put that priority into action? And the answer is worship. For worship to be acceptable, it must be the worship that God desires. We do not define worship. Now this text in John chapter 4 is our Lord Jesus Christ in conversation about acceptable worship. There are many sincere people that want to worship, but they're sincerely wrong in the way that they worship. And without knowledge of how to worship, they don't truly worship Christ. Now, as I said earlier in the reading, everyone recognizes this passage in John's Gospel. This is the interview that Jesus had with the woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. And as we usually do when we have a long text for the sermon uh, passage that, that we Read the text in the congregational reading as we did today. And so I'm sorry, but those who are watching the video, those listening to the podcast would not hear the reading of John chapter 4, this portion of it. And so I encourage you, if you're watching or listening, that you would read this passage. 
We have already read the background of this conversation in the first part of the chapter, so I'd like for us to just slip down to the part of the discussion that reveals the dispute about worship. In verse number 19, after Jesus showed his omniscience, after he showed the woman that he knew everything about her, this Samaritan woman that she knew, this woman knew that she was not speaking with an ordinary man. In verse number 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is... When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you see the problem in the text? It's a problem of worship. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And this is the worship the Father desires. And I want you to hold on to that thought because we will come back to that as the central issue of worship. I'm sure when each of you got up this morning, you you didn't just think, hey, I'm going to church today. Also in your mind was the thought, I'm going to worship. I hope that's part of your thinking because a believer... As a believer, worship is an automatic reflex. You are made to worship. You, you are saved for the glory of God, which means that worship is in your spiritual DNA. Now you think for a moment how you differ from the rest of the creation. You're not like cats and dogs. You're unlike elephants and zebras. You're not monkeys, no matter what the evolutionists say about your ancestors. No, you are different. You were created in the image of God. And the image of God means that apart from and different from the rest of the animated creation, you were made to relate to God through thought, through reason, through intelligence. You have the ability to process what you hear and read about God. You can receive knowledge from Him to understand who He is and who you are. And also to understand what must happen before you can have a relationship with Him. We're all born with a reason for our life. God created you in His image to worship Him. You have no other purpose for walking this planet than to worship God. And anything that supersedes this as a primary purpose of your life is defiance of the Creator God. In fact, that statement is nearly made that way in Scripture. With the gross morality of this culture, with the senseless wickedness of it, you can see that most people do not know, do not understand the purpose of their life. And they certainly don't fulfill it. If the reason for our existence is to worship God, then we would expect the scriptures, which are the special revelation of God, we would expect that they would be filled with examples of people that worshipped. We can see how they worship. We can... Look at the activities that support worship. And there are multiple examples throughout the scriptures of how to do it and how not to do it. We begin with the beginning in Genesis. And we see one of the first things that people learned to do was worship. Abel 
brought a lamb of his flock. And he gave that in sacrifice to God. And that was an act of worship. Cain knew that he was supposed to worship, but he brought the wrong sacrifice. And so his sacrifice was not accepted. And thus his worship was not accepted. Now, neither of these two young men stumbled upon the idea of of worship, that they should worship God. No, worship was ingrained in the human psyche from the very beginning. Adam's reverential fear of God stemmed from this innate knowledge that God is to be worshipped. By the end of Exodus, second book of the Bible, there is a highly elaborate system of worship that's been put into place. It was given by God on Mount Sinai, and it contained methods of worship that often puzzle the best of Bible students. And you know this because we had spent months talking about the tabernacle and the worship and all the things that they did, all the complex details of it, the symbols that are there. And at the center of that worship system was sacrifice, always sacrifice. Always worship included some sort of a sacrifice. Later on we'll see that is true still in the New Testament. It was true in the beginning. Abel knew it. Cain knew it. Moses knew it. Abraham knew it. In fact, worship in sacrifice was modeled by God himself when he killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are acts of worship by those who worship rightly and those who did it wrongly. Often God's people practice perverted worship. That's what led to Israel's punishment and them spending years in captivity to foreign rulers. The charge against them was the perversion of the commandments. Ye shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make images to worship. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And this is the conflict that we see in John chapter 4. Hundreds of years later, there's a difference in worship. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. Now, in this scripture, the woman at the well in Sychar knew that there was a difference in worship because there's this dispute that went on between the Samaritans and the Jews about the right way to worship. Now, in our secularized society today, we we don't think of the differences in people as being a matter of worship. Worship never enters the picture, uh, never enters our common conversations and uh, in our prejudices that we have. But that was not true in the woman's time. The heart of the difference between Jews and all other people was worship. And when Jesus sat down on the well and began a conversation with this woman, she was puzzled. Why did this Jewish man, why did he do this? Jewish men did not sit with did not speak to, did not have anything to do with Samaritans, especially Samaritan women. And you know this from many, many sermons and reading that that Jews in Galilee, in the north, would customarily go all the way around Samaria that lies between Galilee and Judea in their travels because they did not want to step a sandal into Samaritan territory. Why did these two people groups stay away from each other? We could go into a long history of distrust between them and the reasons for it, but fundamentally the real heart of the issue is worship. Who is God? Who has the right to approach God? And what is the right way to approach Him? And in Romans chapter 1, we have another opinion of worship. 
I want you to hold your place here in, in John chapter 4 and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. What is wrong in our natural thinking about worship? Is it possible for us to worship correctly without direct instructions from God? Paul explains, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now there Paul says that the knowledge of the creator God is indisputable because we can see the evidence of what he did. We look around us and we see things that nobody but no one but God can do. There's this evidence in nature. We, we can't deny his existence. But is that evidence enough to lead us into the proper worship of him? Well, Paul goes on, verse 21, and answers that question. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They realize he exists, but they don't glorify him as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What are we reading about here? We're reading about the corruption of human nature. The corruption of human nature that leads us into direct violation of the commandments. In our natural spiritual state, we always pervert worship. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now there we have the heart of the matter. And as we have discussed so many times, the heart of the matter is the heart. And that is because we are fallen, our heart is wrong. Because we are in a natural state of fallenness, we are corrupt. We are creatures that have a corrupt heart and a corrupt heart coupled with innate knowledge of God and worship. That's what we are. We, are, we have a corrupt heart and yet we have the knowledge that we should worship God. And what's the problem is we can't mix this corruption with that knowledge and come out right. It can't be done. We need special revelation to keep from changing the worship of the one true God into the worship of creatures. And take note of this, that Paul describes this as the worship of demons. He said the Gentiles sacrificed to demons. And essentially what he's telling us is that those, anyone who doesn't worship God in the right way is worshiping the devil. Now, I think that's rather strong language to imply that those churches that claim to be Christian and yet they teach a false gospel and they're meeting in their churches and they're singing in their churches and they're preaching in their churches but they are worshiping the devil and yet that's the implication of false worship and that's the worst de deception of Satan. That's the danger of his, of, his, of his deception. He transforms himself into an angel of light. And people worship this angel of light. And they say we're worshiping God, but who are they worshiping? Well, they're worshiping the devil. God doesn't accept the worship of 
false churches because they worship Satan. Well, let me take you back to what Jesus told the woman. As sincere as she was in her idea of worship, Jesus said to her, you don't know what you worship. And of course, Jesus knew Samaritans, he knew where they came from, he knew what they believed and everything about them and her. Now, the history of Samaria is a country originally split off after the, from Israel after the death of Solomon. They were the northern tribes of Israel. They constantly lived in idolatry, which was the impetus for God to use the Assyrians as a chastisement mechanism. So they were conquered by the Assyrians, taken into captivity, and then their country was repopulated with displaced Jews, and through their intermarriages with with idolaters, their worship was perverted. In Jesus' time, the Samaritans were thought of as dogs. The Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. In other words, their deity was wrong. Their worship was wrong, even though they claimed to worship the same God as the Jews. But do you see how God said, or Jesus said, God must be worshipped? He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now, I know that this is not popular preaching, not popular to tell you this, but thousands of people across America are in churches that worship the wrong God. Their God is not Jehovah God of the Bible. Acceptable worship of God is to worship Him in truth. And I would certify to you that truth is found in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the special revelation of God that inform us of the truth and of the truth of who God is. And the true God will match up perfectly with the commandments that God gave Moses in Exodus 20. Now my my regret in this sermon is is the lack of time to tell you about all the far-reaching consequences of this. And I could go into so many different areas to show you, but but here's one: I, I, the the toleration, for instance, of every sexual perversion imaginable, and allowing that into the church, and then sanctioning it by ordaining a sexually twisted clergy. That is the worship of demons. Jesus said, "God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth." Now let's take just a few minutes to examine this statement. First, worship is regulated by truth. Proper worship must be based in truth. Is that a controversial statement? Is, is it hard to accept that God's character is truth and so that anything that magnifies Him must be based in truth? John 17 says God's word is truth. So any proper worship of God must have his word as the basis. Now, I I wouldn't claim that people who disagree with us on certain points of doctrine that are not key to salvation, I don't say that they're guilty of worshiping demons. I mean, there is a degree to which either of us can be wrong. We may miss proper interpretations of scriptural truth. None of us is perfect in all of our understanding. We have some disagreements. But if we are saved... By believing the right gospel, then we are worshiping the true God. Our disagreements may lead us into imperfect worship, but not into Samaritan worship where we don't know who we worship. And that's not to say that there aren't in some self-styled Christian churches some who just are ignorant of this, but they are worshiping demons. Jesus said that God is a spirit, 
It means he is immaterial. For God to be seen, he must be manifested in a body. And that's what he did when Jesus Christ, his son, became incarnate. He is the invisible God in human flesh. Colossians says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And he will always retain that visible form. We'll see him when he comes back. He'll come back visibly. And throughout all of eternity, he'll be there in glorified human flesh as the visible God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Father remains spirit forever. I haven't time to go into Trinitarian explanations today. But I want you to note there is nothing that I've said thus far that denies the Trinity. Before the New Testament... In the birth of Jesus, there were pre-incarnate appearances of him. He was visible, but he didn't come to be permanently visible and to live with us until his birth in Bethlehem. God is a spirit. The spirit is not localized. He is omnipresent. He fills all places. He can't be confined. And when you think of that, you'll begin to understand the reason that God absolutely forbade the representation of him in an idol. When Solomon built the temple, he knew it was not a place that could contain God. Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens amongst thousands of idols, dozens of temples, and he said, God cannot dwell in temples made with hands. God said, you shall not make any graven images. And that reflects the truth that God can't be represented by anything that we make with our hands. So if you ask, why are there no statues in this building? Why don't we have a replica of the Sistine Chapel on our ceiling? Because it's idolatry. There is no crucifix in this church because a crucifix cannot represent God. The problem is that with the crucifix, it shows God only in human form. And a dead God, by the way. It doesn't present the truth about God. The crucifix cannot give us a picture of the omnipresent, imminent, living, spirit God. And so what happens when we violate the command not to make an image of God, and we kiss it, and we fondle it, and we make it sacred? Well, folks, then you have entered into the worship of demons. And that was the sin of Israel when Moses was on the mountain receiving the commandments. He was getting the prohibition against idols and the people are in the valley making a golden calf. They were restless because Moses was gone too long. So they took off their earrings and their other items of gold and gave them to Aaron. And Aaron made them a golden calf to worship. And what did they say? Did they say, this calf is Jehovah God. No, they didn't say that. In their minds, they were honoring God. They made a representation of God that matched their perceptions. They knew this calf didn't part the Red Sea. They knew that the calf didn't give them manna and quail. Oh, this calf was just something to remind them of God. And Roman Catholicism claims the same. Do they believe their idols are God? No. But they claim they remind them of God. They're an aid to our worship. They're, they they are, are pleased with this representation of God. But the question is, is God pleased with a representation or a reminder of Him in such a way? 
No, I'll tell you what God did. God swept down and destroyed 3,000 of them and there would have been more if Moses hadn't interceded. It was perverted worship. They worshipped the golden calf and that was the worship of demons. Another incident among many is the episode of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These were two men that were part of the priesthood and they were assistants to their father Aaron. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu were sanctified for the priesthood when God miraculously sent down fire from heaven and consumed their sacrifice. And that was the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. This fire that came from heaven was a perpetual fire that Israel didn't extinguish. They kept it burning. They passed that fire on by keeping a torch burning. And so from place to place when they moved the altar, they would always use this fire to begin a new fire on that altar. It was sacred fire. All worship came from that fire. Soon after Nadab and Abihu were inducted into the priest's office, they took strange fire, fire that wasn't kindled by God, and they put it in their censers. And this time, God sent down fire again, only it wasn't to consume a sacrifice. Instead, he burned up Nadab and Abihu. You see where I'm going with this? Worship is not trivial with God. Worship is by the divine prescription of truth. How can you break God's commandment not to make and worship idols and then make an idol and worship God? Do you think God is any less concerned about worship today than he was in the Old Testament? Will he allow us to have idols in our church? Well, I said there are many examples of worship in the Old Testament, both right and wrong. Another example is Uzzah. You remember him? He was the one who reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant as being transported. God struck him dead. Why? Why? Because... God didn't want Israel to forget the divine prescription for worship. This goes back to the plans that God gave Moses for the building of the tabernacle and the furnishings. Everything in the tabernacle, the setup of it, the dismantling of it, when it needed to be moved, the, the transportation of all the building materials, all the articles of furniture in it, all of that could be moved only by three of Israel's families. And all of them were a part of the tribe of Levi. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Three families, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, took care of moving the tabernacle. Always, for all the times, just those three families, nobody else. The sons of Gershon took care of the tent coverings. They took care of the linen fence and all the cords that held these things together. The sons of Merari were responsible for the boards, that made the structure of the tabernacle, the sockets of silver that the board sat on as a foundation, the bases and the pillars. The last family was the sons of Kohath. They handled all the furnishings inside the tabernacle. They had charge of the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the dishes, the censers, the snuffers. And they had charge of the tabernacle's most sacred piece, the Ark of the Covenant. For 500 years, the same families did the same work. The sons of Merari could not move the furnishings because that was not their job. 
sons of Gershon could not pack up the boards and the sockets because it was not their job. The sons of Kohath did not take down the linen fence and remove the tent coverings because it was not their job. Each one did what they were supposed to do. God told them what they could do. God ordered their specific contribution to worship. Now interestingly, when Kohath moved the tabernacle furnishings, they weren't permitted to see the hidden furnishings that were on the inside. Only the priests were allowed to go there. So they never went into the tabernacle like allied van lines. And they said, okay boys, two of you grab the altar of incense. A couple of you go in there to the next compartment there and you pick up the Ark of the Covenant. Let's just pack up the boxes and get ready to go. Well, they never saw what they were moving. The priest covered all of these items before they were moved. They were out of sight. And the men came and picked up the covered items. When they moved the Ark of the Covenant, there were rings on the side of the ark and there was a long pole that went through these rings on either side and they picked up the ark by these poles they never touched anything but the poles the ark wasn't seen while they transported it it was covered when they moved it God was so precise about this that he said you must carry this you must walk with this they weren't permitted to carry it the easy way by putting it on a wagon they physically carried it between them well, now we come to Uzzah 500 years later Uzzah was one of the sons of Kohath responsible for transporting the Ark of the Covenant in the 500 years that had passed Israel had become very lax in their worship the Ark of the Covenant was not where it should have been then King David who was determined to get worship back on track decided to move the ark to a place where Israel could return to God's design for worship. And so they had to move the ark. And what did they do? Well, only the sons of Koath could move it. And so the descendants of Koath were there. They wanted to restore worship too. They wanted to do the right thing. But they started out wrong to do the right thing. They put the ark of the covenant on a cart, which they weren't supposed to do. And, and I suppose we should give them credit for understanding the sacredness of the ark. Uh, they, they didn't put it on an old cart. They didn't put it on a beat-up wagon that was used to carry grain or firewood or haul trash. Oh, they got a new cart, a brand new cart, and they hitched it up to oxen to pull the cart and move the ark. And that was wrong. The ark was supposed to be carried on foot. And let me just stop there for a minute. They chose a brand new cart, and the assumption was this would honor God. This would please God, because God deserves the very best, so we better make a new cart, brand new cart, and put the ark on it and move it. But they had missed the earlier commands that they were supposed to obey. So those oxen, as they lumbered along, moving the cart, one of them stumbled, the load shifted, and Uzzah, one of the sons of Kohath, reached out to steady the ark. He thought it was going to fall. He touched it. And immediately God struck him dead. Nobody was to touch the ark. So God made an example of Uzzah. Worship must be right. It is only in spirit and in truth. Was Uzzah a good man? No doubt he was. And this is the reason that David was so highly upset with God that God struck him dead. Uzzah 
thought he was doing the right thing. I don't think that he had any malice in his heart. There's no evil intent. When he saw that ark begin to fall, his intention was to protect Israel's most sacred article of worship. And this, this was about Jehovah God, the worship of God. But he was wrong. And here's the point. It doesn't matter what we think is acceptable. God determines how this should be done. He's concerned that worship is according to spirit and truth, and that is all he will accept. Does that tell us something? Well, it tells us a whole lot. That there is much that pretends to be worship that is not true worship. In fact, in most churches, people do not worship God. They worship self. Worship is designed for them, not God. I mean, how many times have you heard people complain about how the church does music? How many times do you hear people say, complain about the length of the sermon? And they say, oh, it just doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't lift my spirits. It doesn't get me moving. It doesn't get me going. And guess what? Worship is not about you. Worship is about God, and it's about truth. What do you do in worship? You praise and worship God for who He is and what He's done. And I'm much more concerned about how God feels about it than how you feel about it. Now now let me show you how churches depart and they do what is right in their own eyes rather than what is right by God's standard. One thing they do is to use worship time to draw a crowd. Churches market worship and they try to Attract people by great music, by showmanship, by dramas and entertainment. They design the church services to accommodate the preferences of unsaved people so that when they come to church, they feel comfortable when they come. They attract the lost with the music and the entertainment, and they call it worship. How can a lost person worship God in truth? You can't worship God if you don't know Him. Now, I want you to understand this, and I don't mean to be insensitive to anyone who may be here. You've not received Christ as Savior. You can't worship God without knowing God and having a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And did you know there is not one place in the Bible where it says that the church fellowship is designed for the lost? The Bible never even says the meeting of the church is for evangelism. It's good to be evangelistic. We'll talk about that later as a part of worship. But nowhere in the Bible does it say the church is for evangelism and that we're to make it a point to attract the lost to the fellowship. Now we come to the church for the purpose of fellowship in our common faith. We come for the edification of the saints and, of course, for worship. Only the redeemed can worship. Praise God if the lost come in and they hear the truth. But the truth is also only the redeemed can worship God. Now it's passing strange how this thing got flipped upside down in some churches and even in this church years ago. It was taught that the place, the church is not the place for worship. They said the place for worship is out there. And what we do in here is not worship. Now, what they, were, what they were really saying was this, is that we need to get lost people in here for evangelism. And we don't worship in here, so we have to worship out there. We worship here, evangelize. I mean, the truth is, we worship in here, and we evangelize out there. That's what the scriptures would teach. 
Now, we thank God for opportunities to preach the gospel in here. I'm never, never would I say we turn lost people away. We're happy when you bring unsaved friends to church, but we will not design church services for them. We don't intend to entertain them or you. We come to worship God. I don't want to make any golden calves. I don't want to offer strange fire. I don't want to touch any arks. God does not take kindly to false worship. The only true worship is his worship. Now secondly, worship requires the preaching of the word. Worship is based on truth and truth comes from the word of God. Jesus prayed to his father, John 17. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Where do we get truth? The only place is the word of God. Any truth that exists finds its source in God. If we come to worship, how will we base it in truth? We must go to the word of God. And the principal method of circulating the word of God is what? Preaching. God designed preaching as the way to give people truth. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Timothy's charge as a young pastor and the central number one activity for him was to preach the word. Isn't that interesting that God never said your central number one activity is to go out and knock on doors? Well, it's a good thing to do, but that, that's not what Paul told Timothy to do. He said, preach the word. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke. Always be ready to preach the word. Why? What is the word? The word is truth. What else did Paul say about it? 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. What are we to do in the church? We must equip God's people. The word supplants all deficiencies in us. It fills all the voids. If something is missing, God's word fills it. That's what the scripture says. It will furnish you. For all good works. And that certainly includes worship, doesn't it? What better work is there than worship? You were made for that. It's a chief priority. That makes preaching the best form of worship. And I know that many people don't consider preaching to be worship. In most churches, who is the worship leader? Who is that? Well, almost universally, people would call the person who leads the music. He's the worship leader. And sometimes called the worship pastor. Music is great, it can be soul-stirring, but neither musical notes nor lyrics were written by God, unless you sing the Psalms or some other scripture. We must hear from God to worship Him properly. And we hear from God in the preaching of His Word. When we read scripture, we are in worship. When we preach and teach the Word, we are in worship. We can worship God in other ways, but will not improve upon hearing from Him. Jesus said He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so the first place to look when you visit a church is not the music. Not the music. 
Listen to the word that is preached. Determine, is it faithful to scripture? Worship begins with the truth. And the truth is best broadcast by the preaching in the pulpit. So if you think you're worshiping when you sing a catchy tune, when you bebop with your head, stomp and clap your feet, or stomp your feet, clap your hands, you made a bad mistake. Worship begins with truth. And truth comes from the Word of God. The focal point of worship will always be this. This is it. Everything we do here is to get you to this. We call the congregation to worship every Sunday morning, not with a song, but with the reading of God's Word. And that's what it's all about. Not jumping up and down, not swinging to the beat, not worked up emotions, although we can worship with music and emotion. But I'll tell you something, it's not designed to please us. The real key to worshiping God in spirit and truth is to determine if you are worshiping at the altar of your own desires or of God's desires. This is the beginning of our topic of worship. God designed worship and he designed you to worship him. Do you know him? Do you know the one true living God who is Jesus Christ? Only by faith in Him will you approach God. Only through Jesus Christ will you honor God, the God that made you. Only in Jesus Christ will you fulfill the purpose for your life. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.